Okay. So good, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, tonight we're going to go over the embattled epistle to the Romans. Okay? So when I, when, when I do these little St. Paul classes, I should say the first time I ever decided to do a St. Paul class, I had lots of inhibitions about doing St. Paul. And I said to you before, you know, St. Paul's hard to understand. He writes theology. He's dealing with letters that are written to a, another audience. You've only heard half the story. Um, and I have to tell you, one of my major inhibitions of offering St. Paul was that I knew I had to tackle the letter to the Romans. Right? Uh, there's been more ink spilled over this letter down through the years in history than for any other writing in the New Testament. Okay, it's, it is the most embattled of all letters. And the reason why is because this letter, Paul's Epistle to the Romans, became the theological foundation of the Protestant Reformation. Right? This is what Martin Luther pointed to. Uh, uh, this is what um, all the Protestant Reformers pointed to. This was their biblical foundation for the great split between Protestant and Catholic. Okay? Now, so there's... I want to tell you one thing. Um, when you read St. Paul again, keep this in mind. You can take almost any passage of St. Paul and look at it and, and, and read it and appreciate it just on its own merits. Because Paul's writing theology. And you can take any of these little passages independent of the rest of the context... You can appreciate them all just on their own merits. And it's, it's like a bag full of gemstones, Paul's letter to the Romans is. Okay? But if you understand the context, the whole thing comes much more alive, and that's what I want to try to do. Okay? I was just talking to Deacon Dick uh, before, and he was saying, Oh, you're teaching a class on Paul. Um, how many weeks? Eight weeks. Uh, which letter are you teaching? Well, I'm actually teaching eight letters. Eight letters in eight weeks, you're crazy. It took me two years to teach Acts of the Apostles. I was like, well, okay, I'm giving you an overview, okay? <laughs> giving you an overview. I make no pretense to this being a complete academic lecture. However, you can go through many complete academic lectures and haven't the slightest idea what the whole thing's all about. All right, so at least I hope you walk away with this thing. Yeah, I know what Romans is all about. And that context can help you a lot, okay? Now, <clears throat> one of the reasons it's difficult, a little bit more difficult, is that this is a cold letter. Okay? Other letters are warmer, more personal. There's more emotion in them. Paul's letter to the Romans is a cold letter because Paul, for the first time, is writing to people he's never visited. Okay? Paul hasn't been to Rome yet. He wants to go to Rome, but he hasn't been to Rome yet. And so what we have here is kind of a less personal, more doctrinal, more uh, theological uh, writing, a uh, treatise here. Okay? But let's talk, about, let's talk about some of the background of the Romans just to help you to put this all into context. It's not quite as interesting as some of the other letters that we've heard. Okay? We, he hasn't been there. He's not resolving the conflict. Um, but still, there, there, there's some interesting background here. There's two basic things that Paul wants to do in his letter to the Romans. Keep this in mind. There's two basic things he wants to do. Number one, Paul wants to make friends. Okay? And number two, Paul wants to stop a fight before it happens. That's what Romans is about. Paul wants to make friends. 
with the Romans. And secondly, Paul wants to stop a fight before it happens. So let's take a look at each one of those two, okay? First thing Paul wants to do, Paul wants to make friends. Why does Paul want to make friends with the Romans? Okay. Paul wants to make friends with the Romans for actually what I consider to be a very fascinating idea. Paul wanted to have a fourth missionary journey. Now you've got your little map, you've got your little book, okay? My, my gorgeous map, my magnificent book, you know? Yours for just $13.50. Um, sold out limited edition. Um, but you see this little map, and it's full of all these cities and all these journeys and places that you think of as biblical kind of places. Antioch and Jerusalem and Ephesus and Philippi and Thessalonica and Corinth and all these cities to the east. And if you read through Acts of the Apostles, okay, and if you read through uh, Paul's letter to the Corinthians, he says very clearly, I want to visit all the cities of the east. The east. The east what? Eastern Roman Empire. Okay? And he does. By the time he's done with this third missionary journey, he has visited all the cities of the Eastern Roman Empire where there were Christian communities. What we tend to forget is there were Christian communities in the Western Roman Empire. Well, Paul just started geographically. He just went to who he you know, was, was, was closest to first. So Paul wanted to make this fourth missionary journey. He never got around to making it. He never got around to making it. Here's why. Paul does his, uh, Paul does his third missionary journey. He ends in Corinth. Okay? And then he goes back to Jerusalem where he brings the collection that, he'd been, that we've been talking about. Okay? The collection with the double-sealed bags with the diocesan-approved guards and all that sort of thing. The trouble is when he comes back to Jerusalem, there's such an uproar, there's such, a, there's such commotion uh, that Paul ends up getting imprisoned. Paul ends up getting imprisoned. He gets sent to Rome. He spends two years in prison. That's not the way Paul wanted to visit Rome. Okay? Paul never gets to make his fourth missionary journey. But, you know, it's just kind of interesting. The Christian faith had spread to all these places um, in the Western Roman Empire. Uh, and, and Paul, there were Christian communities, and, you know, and Paul wanted to go. Paul wanted to go to Spain. Paul wanted to go to France. Paul wanted to go to Belgium. Paul wanted to go to Switzerland. Makes you want to go right along with him, doesn't it? Sounds like a really lovely trip. Um, but, you know, these are the cities that he was hoping to get to. Tarako. Okay? Today, Barcelona. Cordoba. Uh, Massilia. You know it as Marseille. All right? Uh, Lugundum. You know it as Lyon. Okay? Lutetia Parisiorum. Can you imagine Paul's letter to the Parisians? It might have happened. You know, if he hadn't been in prison, this was his plan. And he couldn't do that from Jerusalem. So Paul wanted to make Rome his base of operations. He wanted to make friends in Rome. Okay? Alright, so that's the first reason he writes the letter to the Romans. The second reason he writes the letter to the Romans is he wants to stave off a fight before it starts. Okay? And it's all about the fight between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. Okay, so if you were here last week for... Uh, Galatians, you already know a little bit about the troubles that they had between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. And just by the way, you know, people tend to idealize the ancient church. This great big community just full of love. They all just held hands and swayed and sang kumbaya. Well, no. They've been fighting amongst themselves. You know, it's just the way sin is. It gets inside of us and 
has its nasty effects. So there were these divisions between Jewish and Gentile Christians, and the split in Rome was just like the split back in the Galatians, back back in Galatia. Okay, and the question is, do the Gentile converts have to follow the law of Moses or not? Right. And so he wants to make this preemptive strike. He doesn't want these same divisions to occur again. And by the way, that helps us to date Paul's letter to the Galatians. Because now we know at the end of his third missionary journey, he's finished all these journeys, he's going to go to Rome, he writes this letter, and remember, you know, we had this question, how old is Galatians, which Galatia did he go visit, the northern or the southern, and it depends whether it was written in 49 AD or 58 AD. Um, And so it helps us to date Galatians. So it's reasonable that Galatians is is not the first letter written in the New Testament. It's a little bit bit, uh, uh, older than that. Um, So the the way he wants to stave off this fight is by asking the question that he asked to the Galatians. Ladies and gentlemen, what puts us on good terms with God? Jews, you want to be on good terms with God, right? Of course you do. Gentiles, you want to be friends with God, right? Of course you do. Let's stop and ask this question. What puts us on good terms with God? So Paul hoped that if he settled that question, he could keep a fight from occurring. He could keep a division from occurring. Okay. Um, now, there's a few little details that are making a little bit more interesting what was going on in Rome from what was going on with the Galatians. Because there was an interesting little historical division between the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians that happened in Rome. Okay? So let's talk a little bit about the history of Christianity in Rome. We don't know who brought Christianity to Rome. We're not really sure. We know St. Peter was the first uh, apostle, right, to come and plant the flag. It might have happened before Peter showed up. Uh, The earliest evidence we have of Christianity in Rome is from a tombstone that's dated 43 A.D. Okay? Now, Peter probably was the one who brought Christianity to the city of Rome. We know that Peter was crucified, right, on the Vatican Hill, upside down, because he was unworthy to die in the same manner of Christ, in the time of the persecution of the Emperor Nero, which puts his crucifixion at 67 AD, thereabouts. Okay? Now, um, we also know through a historian, a historian named Eusebius, that Peter stayed in Rome for 25 years and that he came in the time of Herod Agrippa and the Emperor Claudius, right? Which puts it perfectly right on 41 to 54 AD. That's when Herod was uh, in Jerusalem and Claudius was Emperor of Rome. So it looks like Peter showed up in Rome about 42 AD. Okay, so probably Peter founded the church in Rome. One thing we know for sure, it certainly wasn't Paul, right? But whether it was Peter or somebody before Peter, it looks like Jewish Christians were the first ones to plant the flag of Christianity in the city of Rome. Okay, so the Jewish Christians were there first. And you remember what happened when Paul was... I keep going over to find a map here as though there's a map of the Far East. I'm forgetting I only drew a map of the West this time. You, you remember what happened when Paul was, was going around uh, to these places, Thessalonica, Philippi, Corinth, starts preaching Christianity, has trouble with the Jews, right? They get upset. Well, they got upset in Rome too. Okay. In fact, things got so bad that the Emperor Claudius expelled the Jews from Rome. Right? The, year was, uh, the year was 49 AD. 
Uh, and it's an interesting little tiny little historical fragment we've discovered about that. There is a, an ancient writer named Suetonus, okay, and he wrote this writing called The Lives of the Twelve Caesars. And this little fragment we discovered, it says that Claudius expelled the Jews from Rome because they were constantly stirring up trouble about the leadership of a certain Crestus. Crestus. Maybe he got Christus, Crestus, maybe it was a little misunderstanding. Probably was, okay? Whatever happened, things got so bad in the city of Rome, the Emperor Claudius said, everybody out. Okay? Everybody out. So all the Jews get expelled from Rome, and there were a lot of Jews in Rome. It was a major center. They had 13 synagogues. They, 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 they believe they have about uh, 50,000 Jews living in the city of Rome. Okay. Now this is also kind of cool because it closes a little get, a little loop here about what I ta- started talking about with the Corinthians. Do you guys remember Priscilla and Aquila? Who remembers Priscilla and Aquila? Who does not remember Priscilla and Aquila? Who's not sure what I'm talking about? Okay. Um, it's good that I ask these things because you know sometimes I I've gone through this stuff so much. I just to me it's you know I'm just so used to it. When Paul was lived in Corinth, he went. He lived with a couple of Jewish Christians named Priscilla and Aquila. Paul shows up in Corinth. Paul doesn't have a place to live. A couple of people let Paul live in their house. Priscilla and Aquila. Priscilla and Aquila were Jewish Christians who got expelled from Rome. Where'd they go? Well, uh, maybe he had business ties. He went to Corinth. Okay, so. Um, Paul, in the letter to the Romans, he has a few references to people who he knows personally, and chances are he met them when they were in, they were expelled in Corinth. Okay, like for example, he says, "Say hello to Phoebe for me," even though we know he's never been there. Okay, you with me so far? Okay, we're talking about the background of the division between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians in the city of Rome that Paul's trying to stave off. Okay. Well, what happened was five years later. Claudius lets the Jews come back to Rome. Not quite sure why he let the Jews come back to Rome. Maybe uh, there was political pressure for one reason or another. Anyway, five years later, uh, the Jews come back to Rome. Well, they've been out of town for five years. Who do you think's running the church in Rome? Gentile Christians are running the church in Rome, all right? And so the Jewish Christians, they find themselves in the minority, they find their point of view threatened. Paul knows this, and so the first thing Paul wants to do is talk about bringing them together, all right? Okay? What puts us on good terms with God? And so the bulk of Romans is this message that we heard in Galatians already, justification. What makes us friends with God? Going to the synagogue? Okay? Uh, Avoiding bacon cheeseburgers? Okay? Is it uh, eating eating kosher, keeping the law of Moses, or is it faith in Christ? Okay, and remember um, that when when Paul said wrote to the Galatians, he said, "Hey, if the law was what made us friends with God, well, then Christ is optional. He factors out, right? If the law is what makes us friends with God, then who needs Christ? He's unnecessary." And he wanted to make this very very clear. There's another little factor that, that, that plays in here in the history of the church in Rome, and I find this particularly interesting. There were moral differences between the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians. Who do you think was more moral? Who do you think was more moral? Jewish Christians or Gentile Christians? Jewish Christians. Remember, they had the Ten Commandments. They had been following these 
for about 1,200 years. And they'd really internalized all of this. Now sometimes you, you, you take for granted how much you've internalized all these things about your faith. You take for granted how, uh, how unusual this would sound to somebody who's never heard it before. I was learning recently about the history of the American Southwest and Coronado was bringing you know, the conquistadors and the Spanish flag through what's now New Mexico and Arizona and the Sonora Desert. And the friars came along, the Franciscan friars came along with Coronado. And, uh, and you know what was interesting is the friars had no trouble converting the Native Americans to Christianity. You should be a Christian. You should, here's the Blessed Mother, and here's St. Peter, and here's St. Paul. And they said, oh, that's great. And the friars, they scratched their heads and they thought, God, that was easy. Why was that so easy? Well, they came out, it turns out later that they hadn't internalized it. These, these, these uh, Native American peoples, they hadn't internalized it. They'd just taken Peter and Paul and Blessed Mother and added them to their list of deities that they already, that they already knew. All right? the, the God of the wind and the God of the moon and the God of the sun and St. Paul and St. Peter. You know, <laughs> throw them all in together. All right? We take for granted just how much we've internalized this. So the Jewish Christians, they thought they were a little bit better and therefore had a moral claim to the real authority than these Johnny-come-lately Gentile Christians who... You know, they're listening to Paul talk about grace and they're figuring that means I can do anything I want, right? Okay, so there's another little, uh, another, little, another little cause of division there. A little bit of moral superiority on the part of the Jewish Christians. Okay. But I, I can't do justice to the letter of the Romans unless I take one little tangent. Okay, one little tangent away from Romans. We've got to talk a little bit about why Romans was such a big deal historically, right? Why was such a big steal historically? Why did it affect the Christian faith more than any other New Testament book? Why was it the battleground of the Protestant Reformation? Well, it has more to do with the vicissitudes of history than anything else. You could say that they could have looked at Galatians as well as they could have looked at Romans. But if you want to know the thing that really set it off, it was the sale of indulgences. It was all about the sale of indulgences. Who knows what an indulgence is? Who's not sure what an indulgence is? Who's completely confused? <laughs> okay. Okay. The sale of indulgence. Before I say this, can I, can I make one point that might sound very odd to you? In fact, I'm certain it's going to sound odd to you. What would you say if I told you the church never sold indulgences? Probably scratch your head and say that's revisionist history. Let me give it to you a little bit of context. Imagine we take, our, we take an imaginary trip in a time machine. We're going to go forward to the 25th century. And you're sitting there in the 25th century and you're reading about the history of the church in Fredericksburg back in the days of the 20th century and the 21st century. And you're surprised to learn somebody makes the claim that back in the 20th and 21st century they had open communion. Anybody could come up and get communion. Christians, Catholics used to have open communion. Protestant... Catholic, baptized, unbaptized, priest stood up and said, everybody come on up. Well, would that be accurate? Did the church have open communion? Or did some priests say on their own, hey, everybody come on up? Now there's the act, that's what actually happened. Similarly with indulgences. We never had the circumstance in which the Pope gets together with the cardinals and says, you know, we need to raise some money. How can we do it? Oh, I got an idea. We'll sell indulgences. That's a great idea, uh, uh, Cardinal Quiglius. That's terrific, right? 
uh, you're, 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 you're a genius. No. What ended up happening was largely, the, what, what ended up really sparking the Protestant Reformation was largely one guy, his name was Johannes Tetzel. He was a German Dominican. All right? And he was trying to uh, raise money for the construction of St. Peter's Basilica. I don't want to get too off into the history here, but so let me just very, very briefly, very, very briefly paint through this. Here's how it really happened. What's an indulgence, first of all? Remission of temporal punishment due to sin. All right? Some people think that it's time off purgatory. It's really not completely accurate. It's remission of temporal punishment due to sin. What the heck does that mean? Well, let's stop and think about sin for a moment, okay? Let's stop and think about sin for a moment. Sin isn't just something uh, like a mark here on this, on this board that you can just go and erase and it's over. It actually damages you. We can think about sin maybe the same way you could think about someone throwing a baseball through that window. Right? Someone comes along and throws a baseball through that window. And I'm upset, you know, but I'm trying to be a good guy. I forgive him. I forgive him. It's forgiven. Pat on the back. But you know, the window's still broken. And somebody's got to pay for it. Somebody's got to repair it. Sin is like that to our souls. It causes damage. There's a reason why we say you shouldn't. An indulgence is like the repairing of the damage. Did Jesus do everything for us on the cross? Yes or no? Yes. Have we internalized everything he did for us on the cross? No. Some of us more than others. So what the church has done is it said there are certain practices you can do where you can internalize the redeeming, healing quality of the cross. We're going to call these indulgences. Okay? And we're going to make it specific so you know that you've actually done something. You can read scripture for 15 minutes and meditate on scripture. And there's an indulgence for that. Uh, you can you know, put in a holy hour, a half hour, or 15 minutes for the Blessed Sacrament. And there's an indulgence for that. How much? How much healing? Depends on how much you bring to it. Okay? Depends on how much you bring to it. Okay, so if you can set up an indulgence for that, can you set up an indulgence for a charitable work? Sure, if you serve and help the poor, there's an indulgence for that. You can put your heart into that. Okay, what if we set up an indulgence for helping in the charitable work of building St. Peter's Church? Sure, there's an indulgence for that. What if I don't have time to build St. Peter's Church? What if I just write a check? Yeah, that's a great idea. There's an indulgence for that. And that's where we went off the rails. Okay, That's where we, that's where we got wrong. And uh, Martin Luther protested, and rightly so. Okay, And you know, he got very upset. You can't earn your salvation. And he pointed to one passage in Romans that really, really, uh, uh, that, that really, really nailed him. This idea, Romans 3.28. And he said that justification before God is by faith, to which Luther added the word alone. Did you know that? He added a word to Romans. Now, nobody reads that version of his epistle with his word that he added, but he was so certain that it was faith alone that he actually added the word to Romans 3.28. Okay? Um, and let me just close this little loop here, and then we'll get to the content of the letter. Um, um, by the way, do you know the differences between Lutherans and Catholics on this issue have been resolved? You know, they've been resolved. 1999, there was a statement. It was called the Joint Declaration on Justification. And we basically said, we really agree that it's grace alone that justifies us before God, but not faith alone, because we have to cooperate with, with, with God's 
grace. And, 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 we have, and that, that is the action that faith requires. Have I ever told you my little analogy of justification with, with, the, with the rope and the life preserver? No? Okay, well, if you hear this in a homily, pretend like you haven't heard it before, okay? Um, so a man's drowning at sea. And he says, help, save me, I'm drowning, I'm drowning. And someone on a boat, he hears the man, he throws out a rope on a life preserver, he says, grab the rope. And the man grabs the rope and he holds tight and he pulls him up to the ship and he goes, thank you, you saved me. Okay? Well, the one who throws the rope is like God the Father. The rope, okay, is like Christ. The voice that says, grab the rope. It's like the Holy Spirit. Did the man save himself? No, it totally was a gift, but he did have to hang on. That's justification. Does that make sense? We have faith, but you've got to act on your faith. Okay? Okay? So anyway, um, let's take a look at the letter. And this actually makes a, a nice little break point here. How about we just take a tiny little snack break or bathroom break, okay?